Charles Spurgeon is so good. It's just amazing. Like, you can't read a sermon by Charles Spurgeon and not find things in there that are just gold. Uh, really an amazing individual. Isaiah chapter 66, our very last chapter. It'll probably take three weeks to go through Isaiah chapter 66. I've absolutely loved Isaiah. Isaiah continues the twin themes, themes of judgment and salvation. And in portraying these twin themes over and over again, he never sacrifices or diminishes or downplays one to accentuate the other. Both are necessary. Both are important. It's, it's, a, it's two prongs. And Isaiah keeps hitting at these twin themes over and over and over again. Judgment, salvation, they go together. So when we talk about judgment, we're talking really words like righteousness, holiness, justice. Righteousness is probably the best word that I would want to use. God is a righteous God, altogether holy. And because of that, he must judge. Justice will be served. God isn't going to lower his standards because we're failing the class. We're failing in life. God isn't going to make accommodations like, okay, I'll grade on a curve because everybody fails. So if I grade on a curve, if you at least put forth some effort, you will uh, gain a relationship with me or entrance into the kingdom of God. God isn't going to do that. He's altogether righteous. His holiness will remain intact. But when we talk about salvation, we're talking about words like mercy and grace and love. Both are true. God is holy. God is righteous. God is loving. God is merciful. And Isaiah accentuates both themes without, again, ever diminishing, detracting one to to lift up the other. The church is called to to preach, to live out, to confess those twin themes. The church gets in trouble. The cultural church is probably pretty good about talking about God's mercy, grace, and love. And it's a lot easier to sing about God's grace and mercy and love than to also reflect on the fact that he's an altogether righteous God and he doesn't lower his standards. And so somehow, God's mercy is going to win the day without ever sacrificing his own righteousness or his own justice. Both themes must be lived and taught by the church of Christ. In Isaiah, there's been lots of examples of that. Let me at least read a few of these. Uh, You can follow along if you like. I'm just going to pick out not the entire passage that I'm showing on the screen, but they're good references for you. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 19, the Lord says, There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. Which, as Isaiah is told that, and Isaiah records that, on some level, Isaiah must wonder, how could that possibly be that God reveals himself as a righteous God and a Savior? That's why Isaiah, at some point, I, I th- think I have, maybe I don't have it in, in those references, the place where Isaiah says, you're righteous, how are we going to be saved? I mean, you keep talking about you're our Savior, you're our Redeemer. I'm looking at us, 
I'm not seeing any progress. No matter how many hundreds of years we have, no matter how many prophets, no matter how many sacrifices, no matter how many priests, no matter how many kings, we're not improving. But you keep calling yourself Redeemer. And you call yourself righteous. And he doesn't, I don't think he, he can possibly understand how that all plays out. Second passage in Isaiah 59. Every, I think everybody knows Isaiah 53 is an important chapter in Isaiah. Uh, the suffering servant. Uh, the one who lays down his life and is stricken, smitten, and afflicted for his own sheep. I mean, that's an important chapter. Isaiah chapter 59 is hugely important. But I didn't realize how important it was until we did this whole series on Isaiah. I keep coming back to Isaiah chapter 59 because it resolves so much. I'm going to pick up in Isaiah 59. Verse 15 is, is a really awkward verse because the first half goes with what went before. And the second half goes with what's coming after. So in 59, the second half of verse 15 reads, The Lord saw it. And it displeased him that there was no justice. The Lord sees there's no improvement in Israel. The Lord sees that there's no man among men that is going to solve this problem. And it displeases him. Verse 16. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. Coupled with, and his righteousness upheld him. The Lord's own arm brought him salvation, and he did it maintaining his own righteousness. That's the mystery. That's the mystery of these two twin themes that Isaiah is expounding upon through this entire vision, through this entire prophecy, over and over again. And he keeps giving us detail, but he doesn't know how it all plays out. Randy, there's somebody at the... Okay. It's Howard. Howard's making it in here. Okay, um, keep going. In verse 17 it says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west. And his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. A redeemer comes. But in that redeemer coming, it doesn't come without vengeance and wrath and repayment. The Bible doesn't end with this wonderful, they live happily ever after And everybody participates in a universal salvation and the universal blessing of life with God. It comes to those who repent of their sins. It comes to those who are trusting in the Lord entirely and not leaning upon their own understanding. It comes to those who recognize Christ as Redeemer. Isaiah doesn't compromise either one of those two twin points. They're both important. So in chapter 65 and 66, the Lord is answering Isaiah's prayer. 
in answering Isaiah's prayer, he's answering the prayer of the remnant of Israel who is trusting in the Lord, who believes that God has given them this wonderful promise of salvation and redemption. They just don't know how it's going to happen because of looking at themselves, because of looking at their surroundings, looking at their nation. They don't know how that will all play out. And the answer is something like this. The Lord's response assures Isaiah that his purposes of salvation and judgment, they are being accomplished. I know you don't understand right now, but I want you to know my purposes are actually being accomplished to this very day. And the Lord will fulfill all his promises of salvation as well as maintaining his own righteousness. Now, that's where we've been the last couple of weeks, especially last week, building upon that statement on the right. We, did, uh, we looked at three points last week. Number one, the Lord promises he will always preserve and save a remnant in Israel. Isaiah is part of a remnant. There's a few grapes on that cluster that believe God's promise, that are hoping in God's redemption. They just don't know how it will be accomplished. And God says, I will always preserve that remnant. Secondly, the Lord is going to bring salvation to Gentiles and to Israel. Gentiles and to Israel. From, uh, I kind of went on a sidetrack from Deuteronomy and Romans. The plan will be that Gentiles will provoke Israel to jealousy. And then thirdly, the Lord will always distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous. Between the believing and the unbelieving. The repentant and the unrepentant. There will always be that distinction. And that's how chapters 65 and 66 both end. Not with a universal salvation, but with the Lord being faithful to his promise of salvation to those who put their hope in Christ. So, chapter 66 is a refrain of these themes. Isaiah, like a good prophet, he doesn't tell one chronological story. He tells a story where he, he brings it to resolution, then he retells the story, brings it to the same resolution, retells the story, brings it to the same resolution. He keeps adding detail, layering in detail, but he tells the same story over and over again. So in Isaiah, the very last chapter, he's going to emphasize, I'm going to preserve a remnant, I'm going to save Israel and, and, and Gentiles, and I'm going to distinguish between the repentant and the unrepentant. All three themes are all in this chapter as they've been through the entire book. So it looks like this. Chapter 66, thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. It's very interesting that we've got a very important statement bracketed. And it's between verses, the halfway into verse 2. Thus says the Lord, and then declares the Lord. That's telling you what's between there is something very important that needs to be communicated to people. And this is directly from the Lord. Heaven's my throne. The earth is my footstool. What's the house you would build for me? Well, Solomon built a house for the Lord. Solomon's temple was, would, would have been one of the wonders of the ancient world as they knew it. It still stands in Isaiah's day. It's not going to be destroyed for another hundred years after Isaiah's long gone. But that temple is a glorious thing. 
And it was built under the direction and supervision, the command of the Lord. It's not like it was Solomon's idea. In a sense, it was David's idea, and and the Lord refined David's idea into what would please the Lord. That temple would be destroyed by the Babylonians, and then uh, 200 years after Isaiah, a second temple would be built under the command of God. Prophets even come to Israel and say, hey, you've all built your houses, where's my house? So according to the command of God, they build a second temple, which is comparison to Solomon's temple was very modest, though it was later enhanced by King Herod and became again a beautiful temple. But both temples, by the word of God, by the command of God, supervision of God, and yet God says, heaven's my throne, the earth is my footstool. What do you really think you can do for me? What does God want us to know? in this last chapter of Isaiah, by making this pronouncement where he wants you to know very clearly this is his word. And I think the bottom line lesson is, look, I have need of nothing. I need nothing. God doesn't need our praise. He delights in our praise. He's pleased with our praise when we praise him according to what he's prescribed, But he doesn't need it. God isn't any greater because Solomon built this wonderful temple and our buildings, it would be like a shack compared to Solomon's temple. God doesn't need that. He needs nothing. Everything is his. He needs people to know that. A temple cannot add to the Lord's greatness. Our sin does not detract from the Lord's greatness. Our worship does not add, our sin does not detract from. There's a passage in Job that makes that very clear. I love the passage, though I didn't look it up this week. So, why does the Lord tell tell us this? Why do we need to know this in this very last chapter? Why does Israel need to know this? I think think there's several reasons. I think our default setting in life is that we we like to think we can contribute to something good to something that is lasting, to something that is victorious, uh, to something that is wonderful. I think there's a sense within us where we like to think we've participated. Uh, My team, it's not my team, but I would say my team won the Super Bowl. If if that's the team you follow, it's like, I was their fan. I cheered for them all that time. And and yes, they're the ones that played and and practiced and sweat and got hurt. but I was cheering them on all along, and so my team won. I feel like I want to participate in that. I think we also have a default tendency where if we do something good or noble, noteworthy, we kind of feel like whoever we might have done that for or on behalf of, that they're kind of indebted to us. If I've done something very nice for somebody, I kind of think... You know, like, so I could kind of rely on them for a favor because I've done something for them. And God's making it very clear, look, I don't need anything. I don't need your temple. I don't need your worship. I don't need your sacrifices. All by God's command. But it's not for God's benefit. It's not for God's benefit. Just to keep that clear, God isn't defined by our temples. Because Solomon built a temple doesn't mean now he can pull strings on God 
and get God to do things for him because look at the temple I built after all. That's not the way it works. Solomon knew this, so he tells us very clearly in 1 Kings chapter 8. I'm just going to read a little bit of that to you. It's for your reference. 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon is is dedicating kind of the official dedication of the temple, and all of Israel is gathered, and it is a huge celebration. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. And then in verse 27 he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house I've built. Solomon knew as beautiful as temple as was, and as many people would come from all the kingdoms around him to look at this glorious temple, Solomon knew... I haven't added to God's glory or character or person. I don't make the God, I don't make God wonderful. He is wonderful, whether I build a temple or not. God was as wonderful when all they had wandering in a wilderness with, with the Israelites was a little tent that was collapsible that they could break down and set up again. He was just as wonderful then. He doesn't need a temple or a tabernacle. He doesn't need buildings to make his name famous. He's famous because of who he is. Solomon knew that. You know who else knew that? In the New Testament, Stephen knew this. We might be there sometime. Acts chapter 7, Stephen knew this. He quoted Isaiah chapter 66. Those verses up there, all verse 1 and verse 2, he quotes that to the Israelites right before he gets stoned. He makes it very clear. God doesn't dwell... We're not, he's not controlled by us because we built a temple. God needs nothing. And it offends people, and like I say, he gets stoned. The, temple, the temples were for Israel's benefit, not God's. It was by God's command, and God was very explicit about how that, how that temple should be constructed and what the practices were in worshiping him through the priests, and the sacrifices, and the offerings, and and everything that went with it. It was all by the Lord's command, but it wasn't for the Lord's benefit. It was for Israel's benefit. It was one way in which they received and walked in and lived within the blessing of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the provision of God. It was through the means of that temple. Similarly, the church's gathering. When we gather for worship, it's not for God's benefit. It's not, he's, not, he's not more God. The more people that praise God, the greater God is. It's not for God's benefit, it's for our benefit. He's glad when we worship Him in Christ, according to His Word. And we're proclaiming what He said is true. But He's no, he's no better because of it. It's for our benefit. When we gather to pray, it's not because God doesn't know our needs or what's on our heart or what we care about. It's for our benefit, not God's benefit. We're not telling him anything. When we gather uh, to, to uh, look in God's word, what is recorded in scripture, it's not for God's benefit. It's for our benefit. 
What we do, the way we worship God, is for our benefit. And so, if I do not devote myself to gathering together as the church to worship and to pray and to look into His Word, or if you want to apply it individually, if in my own life I'm not devoted to prayer, Bible reading, study, if I'm not devoted to worshiping God through, through my acts of obedience, that's on me. I've, uh, I've, I've hurt myself. I haven't detracted from God's character. I haven't detracted from God's righteousness. Why might I be okay with that? Why might I be okay with not being devoted? And I, I read an article a good number of years ago. Prayer is, has been, if you want to call it a church discipline, which sounds bad to use the word discipline, and I don't mean it in a bad sense. It's, it's, an, it's a good thing. It's an enhancement. But prayer has been much harder for me than Bible study. I, I gravitate to Bible study. Uh, I love theology. I love trying to understand what God's Word says. Prayer is more difficult. And I remember reading an article some years ago that said, you know why you don't, basically it said, you know why you don't pray? It's because you don't think you need to pray. You know why I may not be devoted to the things that God calls me to be devoted to or why I may not be devoted to a gathered church is because I think I don't need it. Which is kind of, which is kind of ironic because then I become like God. I think I have need of nothing. I'm like God. I don't need the church. I don't need to worship him. I don't need to pray. I can handle this. I've got it. And then there's a couple occasions in life where you don't have it. It's very easy to pray. It's very easy to call upon other Christians to care about my needs then. But there's other times I'm, I'm kind of like God. I just really don't need it. I have need of nothing this week, God. So you're off the hook. When the fact of the matter is my needs are much greater than I realize. And I think, I think the Lord is making this very clear in this first statement. I'm the one who has need of nothing. And all that I've commanded you to do isn't because I have a need that needs met. It's because you have a need that needs met. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The one to whom the Lord regards. I'm not going to take time to look at this because I want to make sure we have time for comments and questions. But Psalm 33, if you want a great cross-reference... There are lots of passages that say, who does the Lord regard? Who does the Lord look for? What does the Lord take notice of in our terms? Psalm chapter 33 is a great passage to do that. And it fits very well with what Isaiah says. But the way Isaiah says it, who does the Lord look to? Who does he regard? Isaiah gives us three characteristics. Characteristic number one, they're humble. They're humble. The word humble in Hebrew, this word is found 80 times. It's usually translated poor. Who does the Lord regard? You know who he regards? Poor people. Now, I don't think there's any inerrant quality in being poor sociologically, uh, socioeconomically. I don't think that's necessarily the case, though oftentimes it's the poorer classes that gravitate to the gospel. Because poor, look at Jesus' ministry. Tax collectors and sinners came much more commonly by the grace of God 
than did the religious elite. The religious powerful people who thought because of their power, because of their position, because of their notoriety, because of their recognition, they didn't, they didn't need what Christ had to offer. Of course a poor person might be drawn to him. They need a lot. But in fact, it could be, it's really more than anything else, it's poverty of heart, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So the first characteristic, who does the Lord regard? It's those who are poor. Those who are poor. Secondly, the second characteristic are those who are contrite in spirit. Now the word humble occurs 80 times. That word contrite only occurs two times in all of the Old Testament. Both times are found in 2 Samuel, chapter 4 and chapter 9. Both times that word contrite the other two times it's used are both in regard to the same individual. His name is Mephibosheth, who was the son of Jonathan. Jonathan was David's best friend. Jonathan was the crown prince. Saul was the first king of Israel. Jonathan and David were best friends. Saul and Jonathan were slain in battle by the Philistines. And Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth, who his nurse took him, or his caretaker took him, and it's kind of unclear, I should have double-checked. It seems like he was five years old, so I don't know if she was leading him. Maybe she was carrying him because, because his life was in danger, because the king was dead, uh, the crown prince was dead, and so she's trying to escape with Mephibosheth, and there's an accident, and he's crippled for life. And David shows kindness to that boy out of his love for Jonathan which is a wonderful story. Because to eat at the king's table, there was no higher honor in Israel than to eat at the king's table. And a couple times at communion, I've kind of told that story and probably embellished it a little bit, where the king's, the king's table is assembled, but nobody gets a dish until Mephibosheth hobbles down that hall and enters into that room and takes his seat at the king's table. That's what we are when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're Mephibosheth. We're crippled. The word is crippled. So who does the Lord look to? Who does he regard? The poor and the crippled in spirit. It's literally the other two times the way it's used. The lame in spirit. The crippled in spirit. The third word or the third desert characteristic. And the one who trembles at my word. That's pretty indicting, because I wonder how many times I've ever trembled at God's Word. I find God's Word fascinating. I find God's Word so relevant. There's times I find God's Word very convicting. I find God's Word very humbling. But how many times in my life does it end with the end result of me trembling at what God has said in His Word? Hannah's already read a devotional from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon preached the whole message on, on the idea of trembling at God's word. And he had a lot to say. I'm certainly not going to go over it all now. But he says things like, uh, indifferent people don't tremble at God's word. If you don't read God's word, you can hardly tremble at it. It starts with at least reading God's word. And maybe if you don't get a lot out of it, 
Maybe one of the things you add to that is, God, I'll be honest with you, I'm not getting a lot out of your word. But I believe it's that important I need to expose myself. And so as I, as I make steps to try to read something, teach me. Increasingly, teach me something that I need to know out of your word. With the result, ultimately, of trembling. Why would you tremble? Because when you read God's word, you find out who you are. I find out who I am. And when I read God's word, I find out who God is. He's righteous. He's holy. I'm not. And there should be a trembling. It's amazing that that I can read God's word and it's very clear what a path of obedience is. And I call myself a Christian. And I can walk away from what I know I ought to do and not do it. The opposite of trembling. The opposite of obedience. And I call myself a Christian. Ezra trembled at his word. Chapter 9 and verse 4. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. In Ezra's day, it's a wonderful uh, episode, a narrative of revival and transformation where they read God's word for hours on end and the people tremble and they weep and they're broken. They're not going through just these, these actions of religiosity to make themselves feel good. They recognize God for who he is and they tremble. There's lots of, lots of examples of trembling in scripture I think one of the examples was uh, when Isaac is an old man and he's going to give a blessing to his older son Esau and Jacob comes and deceives him. He dresses up like uh, his older brother. Uh, he brings food like his older brother might bring and, and Isaac bestows blessing upon Jacob because he's been deceived. And then Esau comes and Isaac realizes he's been deceived, and he trembles, and he trembles. Uh, one of the priests was that Eli in the Old Testament trembled when, because he feared for what would happen to the ark of God as it was taken into battle, and the Phil- Philistines took it, and he trembled because it's that important. Is God's word so important that we ought to look for times in our lives where we just tremble before it? What are we going to do in light of what God has revealed about who we are, about what he's done? By contrast, verse 3, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Well, in verse 3, it's a little unclear what the sin is. If you look at verse 3, you've got these is like, 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 That's all been added by translators. It's not in the Hebrew. Uh, 
If they're right, if this is the way to understand it, then the sin in verse 3 is a, is a sin of hypocrisy and insincerity. They're doing something that on given different circumstances, it would be a good thing. They're, they're slaughtering an ox for sacrifice. They're sacrificing a lamb. They're presenting a grain offering. Uh, they're making a memorial offering of frankincense. Those are all good things. Wonderful things. But in their case, it's like they killed a man or they broke a dog's neck and on it goes. In other words, there's a hypocrisy going on. Yes, your, your outward action is by itself, it's a good action, but your heart isn't right with, before me. Your motivations are, aren't right. Your thoughts aren't right. And so even though it might be a good thing, it's like it's not a good thing at all. That's one possibility. I don't think it's the best possibility. I think instead of putting in those likes that the translators added, something a little more literal would be, he who slaughters an ox is one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering is one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense is one who blesses an idol. It's duplicity. Not so much hypocrisy, though I'm sure that was going on. It's duplicity. The same people that do something that is, looks like it's in obedience to God then go out the same day and do exactly what they want to do. The exact opposite of trembling before God's word. I'm going to live my... I mean, all right, I'll give God an hour on Sunday. I'll sing How Great Thou Art. I'll sing whatever the first song was that we sang, All Creatures of Our God and King. I'll sing that song, and then I'm going to go out, and I'm going to, I'm going to live for myself. It's duplicity. And I think this, is, this makes the sin that much more dramatic. It's not just they're doing the right thing with the wrong motivations. They're doing something as if they care about what God has said, and then they go and please themselves the rest of the time. Ezekiel talked about exactly this in chapter 23. Ezekiel said, the Lord tells Ezekiel, they have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbaths. For when they had slaughtered their children in sacrifice to their idols, on the same day came into my sanctuary to profane it. And behold, this is what they did in my house. Can you imagine? The way they just lived the day before they gathered for worship as Christ's church on Sunday. It's duplicity. No intention of having God have any say in their life the rest of the time, other than the little bit of time we give him, we tip our hat to him on a Sunday. A sin of duplicity. It says, they've chosen their own ways. And then again it says, they chose that in which I did not delight. I think this sin started with Cain. Adam and Eve, their first two children that are ever named, are Cain and Abel. And they both offered offerings to the Lord. And one offered a, a blood sacrifice, I think in obedience and faith to what God had revealed up to that point from Hebrews. That's the way I understand it. But Cain said, you know what, I will worship God my way. It's sincere. I'm going to offer the best that I have. I'm not skimping here. This is meaningful. Anybody else would appreciate what I'm about to do? And Cain says, I will worship God my way. And he's wrong. It doesn't make any difference. True religion isn't defined by how sincere and devoted you are if it's not in accordance to truth. 
God has revealed the way he is to be worshipped and approached boldly. Any other way is Cain's way. And it doesn't meet the approval of God. It reminds me also of a passage in Romans chapter 1 and verse 32, which reads, uh, Romans 1.32, I think I have it in my notes. It says, after listing a bunch of sins, it says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, they give approval to those who practice them. They not only choose to do it their way, their soul delights in what we will parade our way as the right way. And your way is the wrong way, if it's in accordance with what God has revealed. It's right out of, so what, now to be clear, Paul's not talking to Gentiles like in Romans chapter 1. He's talking to his people, Israel. They're parading their sin just like the Gentiles do in Romans chapter 1. It also said, the Lord says, I will choose. I also will choose. I'm going to make a choice here too. They're choosing their way. I'll tell you what, I'm going to choose something too. Harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. In Romans chapter 1, where you've got all this list of sins, in Romans chapter 1, it has three times the statement, therefore God gave them up. The first time in the lust of their hearts to impurity. The second time, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. The third time, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They've made their choice. Guess what? I'm going to make a choice too. I will give them up to their sin and they will reap all the consequences of their choices. Because there's no escaping. God is not mocked. A person will reap what they sow in spite of our culture trying to say otherwise. They did what was evil and here the emphasis is on in my eyes. They know God's righteous requirement, according to Romans chapter 1. They know the world was created. They, I don't have to convince somebody. It's not my job. It's not the church's job, the Christian's job, to somehow produce enough evidence that this world was created by special design and not by evolution. That's not, I don't have to worry. They know that to be true. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They're stifling. They're sweeping it under the... It doesn't make any... It's not a truth issue. They don't care about the truth. They don't want to be responsible to a creator. And so they deny it. And they suppress it. In God's eyes, and in Israel, this is the case where, behold... God is angry and we kept on sinning. Israel knows God is angry. Israel knows God's requirements. Israel knows what the law says. They just don't care. They're going to live in their life their way. That's the problem. That's the audacity of this sin. Verses 5 and 6. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. So now the Lord is speaking to that remnant, those that are trembling at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Vain and empty religion does these three things out of those out of verse five, really. Empty religion, vain religion, hates people who worship in truth. Vain religion hates people that say, 
Christ said he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Vain religion hates it when it says there's no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved, the name of Jesus. Hates that person. Vain religion rejects that person. They're cast out. Cast out. And then they're also mocked. That line where it says, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. It's a little unclear with that, uh, what you're to get out of that. I think, I think most commentators agree what, it, what they're, it's trying to say or, or what it means to say. It's less clear, at least in the ESV. I'm going to give you a very uh, a translation that I think captures exactly what he means to say. It's from the Good News Bible. They mock you and say, let the Lord show his greatness and save you so that we may see you and rejoice. That's what vain religion does. They, they put you to the test. Let the Lord do some, this one thing for you and then we'll believe. It's like what they told Jesus on the cross. Come down from the cross. Save yourself. If you do that, well, that'll be pretty impressive. We'll know you're the Messiah. We'll know you're the Savior if you do this great thing. Let the Lord deliver you and then we'll believe. That's what they were saying back in Isaiah's day. Jesus told his disciples that they would be treated this way. There's coming a day where you're going to be cast out of the synagogue. And they're going to think they're being devoted to the Lord. They're going to say this is right and true. And they're protecting the things of God. They're going to do this to you. Isaiah said they're going to do this to you. Jesus said they were going to do this to you. And so it came to be. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The idea of what does it mean to be put to shame in this instance, in this case, goes back to our theme of judgment, and it's defined in the text what it means to be put to shame, because the very next verse explains it. You've got three sounds, but it's very interesting. The word sound here is not usually translated sound, though it is a sound. The way the word is usually translated, which some versions do this, and I think it would be preferable, the word is actually voice. So there's three voices that are telling us what it means to be put to shame. There's a voice of uproar from the city. There's a voice from the temple. And the third voice is the voice of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. The voice of the Lord in judgment against those who have opposed him. And it affects the city. And it affects the temple crowd too. The people that are gathered for worship for the morning and evening sacrifice. And the morning prayers, and the evening prayers, and the offering of incense, and their living du- duplicitous lives, and judgment falls. So there is a remnant. There is salvation. The Lord will be for his people. But there is also, with that message of salvation, there is a message of righteous judgment that falls as well. What are your comments and questions? Uh, Rick. Rick. Oh, 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 the idea of trembling, okay. Uh, yes, I would, I would say that's the same concept. I mean, Isaiah is, sh- is shaken when he has a vision of the Lord in his holy temple. Uh, and he says, I am undone, right? I'm undone. I'm completely broken. He's trembling. He's undone. He's, you know, if you're not undone, you're like, I've got it all together. I've got it all together. Isaiah says, I don't have it all together. I'm undone. Everything, everything that I thought I could trust in and rely on is broken down and is failing me in this moment. So yeah, trembling before God, trembling before 
uh, in his word or in cases like Jacob and Isaiah where the Lord reveals himself in some sense, yeah, there's trembling. And there will be trembling. Like, most people don't tremble at the word of God, but when Christ comes back in power and glory, there'll be a lot of trembling. There'll be a lot of falling to knees. A lot of falling to knees. Sonia? He is pleased by that. We please him. We bring delight to him. He's glad. You know, what uh, Spurgeon, Hannah read what Spurgeon, he's glad in our worship. All those things are true, but he doesn't need it. He doesn't. It, do, it doesn't make God more God. Uh, he's not going to be more God in a new heaven and new earth where there is, in which only righteousness dwells. He will not be more God then than he is God today. So uh, that's how I balance it. In, in accommodating us, God is pleased to worship him in spirit and in truth. But he doesn't need it. He doesn't need it. It's for our benefit, not his benefit. Uh, and benefit, I'm using that term in the, in the sense of it adds something to. It gives something, it provides something I don't have by myself. God doesn't have any of those needs. You know, the worst things are like, and you wouldn't have to find, look very hard to find stuff like, God created Adam and Eve because he needed companionship. He needed, you know, he needed communication. Like, he kind of was lonely. It's amazing somebody would even see fit to put that on paper. But believe it or not, it happens. Uh, Cindy. They weren't believers. Okay. They, were, they, were, they were practicing some form of Mosaic law, or if you want to call it Judaism. They were practicing some form of that, but yeah, they weren't believers. National Israel in Isaiah's day are not a believing nation. Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, this, you know, this cry from the, the temple... Uh, in Jesus' I mean, if you want to, if, a really short version of some Israel history, uh, in Ezekiel's day and Isaiah's day, they were living these, these dramatically duplicitous lives where they were worshiping at the temple and then they're literally doing these, committing these horrible idolatries. Ezekiel's given these scenes of idolatry, horrible scenes of idolatry. You know what the exile solved? It solved uh, these exhibitions of idolatry. In Jesus' day, they didn't have any idols. You don't, you don't read about Jesus like, you've got all these idols, you're worshiping Baal, you're wor- you've got the Asherah poles and the Asterisks. The exile solved the problem of idolatry. So they stopped be- looking like Romans 1 sinners, and they became vor- very moralistic, self-righteous sinners. It didn't solve the sin problem, but it did solve the idolatry problem. You don't read about idolatry in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because now it's all about self-righteousness. But in, in their day, idolatry, I mean, read through Samuel, well, judge, I mean, how far back do you want to go? I mean, it goes back to the golden calf. You know, Exodus, all the way through the books of Samuel and the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles. Idolatry is the, the main problem in Israel through all the Old Testament. But the exile solved that. And so the Israelites said, we don't ever want the exile to happen again, so we are never going to commit these idolatries. Now we are going to follow God's law like nobody's business. And they layered on all these oral law traditions so that they would never break God's law. And you know, they were in captivity for how many years? 
70. Because, why 70? Because there were 70 times they didn't keep the Sabbath year, right? So, so what became very important in Jesus' day? Oral law about the Sabbath. We don't ever want what happened to them to happen again. We are going to so observe the Sabbath, you can only walk so far, you can only do so much work. Like if, you're, if Nancy did a sewing day, it better not be on the Sabbath, because if it was, you could only do like 50 stitches, and after that would be work. I mean, they would figure it all out. They'll never do that again. But it was all self-righteousness. It still wasn't trusting in Father God, who in his mercy brings salvation his way. So it's a completely different kind of sin in the New Testament than it was the Old. Both are damning. Whether you're a Romans 1 sinner or a Romans 2 sinner, you will never enter the kingdom of God, no matter how self-righteous you are. Anybody have a little rich and then we'll close. I think that very much, that's a great verse. I think it fits very much with trembling of God's word. You know, we don't master God's word. We don't come to decide, you know, to manipulate God's word. When we approach God and look at his word, we ought to do it with a, with a poverty, with a crippled spirit to recognize if God doesn't illuminate, if he doesn't show us what is true in his word, you know what? I will so manipulate it that I come up with some sort of a system that I feel pretty good about myself. So I think, it's, I think it has a lot to do with how do I approach God in his word to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. This is God's work. I'm not, I can't manipulate the process. Take me out of the process. Let God do his thing and recognize it for what it is. I think, I mean, right, we could spend, I think, weeks on this. I think you could do a whole series on this. But it's at least now to plant the thought, my attitude coming before God. I can only have boldness because of who Christ is, not because of what I think I've got figured out. You know, uh, I don't want to reboot. Let's uh, stand and be dismissed in prayer.